go for your Bibles. And of course, go for them in a big way. And um, we're actually going to do four books tonight, um, which, which may sound a lot, but it's actually quite viable. Um, we'll be doing Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And um, that's why this section that we're on are called the Minor Prophets. It's not because um, that they're minor in importance in any way, but simply because of their size. They're fairly short, and certainly compared to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the major prophets, the, obviously these are, are minor in that they're, 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 they're small. You know, the books are not very long compared to the three major ones at all. So let's uh, do that. If you find uh, Micah first. So certainly the, the, the end is in sight uh, for the Old Testament now on, on, on this Bible survey. Right, Micah. Let's um, get the background here. And um, in the, the lead up to um, the northern kingdom, Israel, going into Assyrian captivity, uh, you had Amos preaching up in Israel. He was from Judah, from the southern kingdom, but his, he was sent up to uh, the northern kingdom and he was prophesying up there with Hosea. And, uh, you know, both, both of them were, were specifically warning Israel um, about the impending Assyrian captivity. Now, meanwhile, down south um, in Judah, the southern kingdom, you had Isaiah, who we've done, and along with Isaiah was the prophet Micah, and he's the one that we're doing now. And so Micah was down Judah way, down south, uh, working alongside Isaiah, and um, together they were bringing the people of the southern kingdom down in Judah to repentance so that they were spared from going through the Assyrian captivity. So the northern kingdom is set in a few years, as it were, to fall to the Assyrians, and uh, you've got Amos and Hosea prophesying up in the north in Israel, and Isaiah with Micah is down in Judah at this time in the southern kingdom, and their ministry brought the people to repentance so that Judah didn't go into the Assyrian captivity along with the northern kingdom. Now, a hundred years after Isaiah and Micah, Jeremiah failed to do likewise in regards to the Babylonian captivity. And uh, so he, he was again warning uh, Judah that captivity was coming. But on that occasion, Judah didn't repent. And so the Babylonian captivity eventually happened. So with Micah, he's a contemporary of Isaiah. He's a prophet of Judah in that he is from the south himself and mainly worked down in the south. So he's a prophet of Judah. But his message is to both Judah and Israel. So although he's based down in the south and he's from the south, his message is to both kingdoms, the north and the south. And his, man, his ministry spanned the reigns of three 
kings down in Judah, and they were Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And of course, it was eventually during the reign of Hezekiah that there was the aborted attempt for the Assyrians to take Judah into captivity as well as uh, Israel in the north. And um, as with Isaiah, obviously, Micah lived to see the Assyrian captivity of Israel. He and Isaiah were alive when that actually happened. So their ministry saw deliverance for the southern kingdom, but they saw the northern kingdom going into Assyrian captivity. Right, so then with, with that background, <clears throat> let's um, actually dive into the text. So um, let's, let's begin with um, chapter 1. And he dives in, Micah dives in, with a prediction, a direct prediction, that captivity for Israel, the northern kingdom, was imminent. But it was more than that. He says also that Judah would suffer when it happened as well. So he's saying that the captivity of the northern kingdom is going to happen, but that when it did happen, it would affect Judah, and that Judah would suffer in regards to it. Now if we actually read <clears throat> verse 12, and you'll see the, the key verse here, and he writes, Those who live in Maroth arrive in pain, waiting for relief, because disaster has come from the Lord, even to the gate of Jerusalem. And that's, that's the key thing, that this disaster, the, the north would be swept away, but this disaster would come to the gate of Jerusalem. Now let's just remind ourselves of, of what actually happened at that point. The Assyrians took the northern kingdom into captivity. And then what happened is that led by Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, they made a play for the southern kingdom and they besieged Jerusalem. So Jerusalem actually found itself surrounded by the Assyrian armies, and uh, this was while Sennacherib was the king of Assyria. And you'll remember that what happened was that uh, Hezekiah, who was the king at that time in Jerusalem, received this kind of a mocking, threatening letter you know, that, that was saying, your, your God isn't big enough to deliver you. And it, it kind of addressed the people and saying, don't let Hezekiah fool you into thinking that you can be, you know, kind of like surrender now and it will be better for you. And, uh, you know, Hezekiah got that letter and, and the Assyrian troops were surrounding the city. There was famine. It was dreadful. It was absolutely terrible. And Hezekiah, he got this letter. And you remember, and we've seen this in, in past talks dealing with the history of all this, that Hezekiah, what he did is he went into the temple and he spread this letter out before the Lord. He, he, he kind of opened it up before the Lord and he, he gave the, the, the whole thing into the Lord's hands and cried out to the Lord for deliverance. And, and of course, this was why Hezekiah was, was a good king. He trusted the Lord. He turned to the Lord. And as he did that, Isaiah, who was in the city, Isaiah was actually resident um, in Jerusalem at the time. We don't actually know where, where Micah was, you know, we don't have those details, but certainly we know that Isaiah was in Jerusalem at the time. And he got word to Hezekiah saying that there was going to be an imminent deliverance from the Lord and that Jerusalem was going to be delivered from the Assyrian army. 
And <clears throat> what happened immediately was Sennacherib, who was surrounding Jerusalem with his armies, Sennacherib received word that uh, there was an incursion by the Egyptians elsewhere in regards to his kingdom. And so what he did is that, that he thought, well, okay, I'll have to go and sort the Egyptians out because they're kind of like invading me up there, like. And, um, and so he thinks, well, I'll go and sort them out, then I'll come back and, and sort Jerusalem out. So he got this is kind of a, I'll be back scenario. So the um, Assyrian army kind of like prepared to leave and they, they march away from Jerusalem to go out and, and, and sort the Egyptian uh, threat out, but kind of virtually with the words, you know, I'll be back, so don't, you know, don't, don't rest too easily, Jerusalem, because uh, you're yet going to fall to us. And as they marched away, that night, the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And of course, that decimated the army. And, and of course, then any question of the Assyrians besieging Jerusalem was, 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 was just gone. I mean, they, they were wiped out. And in fact, sometime later, Sennacherib himself was murdered uh, by his two sons. And so you, you can see there from the history that this prophecy of Micah absolutely fulfilled. And here in chapter 1, he's predicting the coming captivity of Israel, the northern kingdom. Of course, the Assyrians swept them off completely. Uh, you know, just took them away, destroyed them. And yet he's saying that this disaster would come to the gate of Jerusalem. Not that Jerusalem would be taken, but it will come to the gate of Jerusalem. And of course, that's exactly what happened. The Assyrian army surrounded Jerusalem and Jerusalem was, as it were, a gnat's whisker away from being taken into captivity as well. But at the last minute, the Lord stepped in and delivered them. So the, the judgment was mainly on the northern kingdom, but it impacted, it impinged on the southern kingdom as well. And that Jerusalem, as I say, came within that gnat's whisker of going into captivity with the northern kingdom too. And then when we move into chapter 2, <clears throat> I'll, I'll actually read the first five verses because it gives us a taste of the sins that God was judging his people for. Um, let's, let's actually read them. And he says, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out, because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. Therefore the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people, from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity in that day, men will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. And what's happening there? is the Lord is denouncing his people for their greed and for their theft. And this was the state that they were in. Corruption, money, 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 the whole thing. 
And, and of course, the Lord hates this. It creates the most appalling social injustice. And, and the Lord w was just totally against the way they were behaving, which was in turn totally against, um, you know, the, the way that the Lord had brought them up as a nation to behave. And, and of course, he, this prediction of, of coming disaster obviously applies ultimately to both kingdoms. Because although the northern kingdom went first into the Assyrian captivity, obviously a hundred years later, the Babylonian captivity took care of the southern kingdom of, um, of Judah. And so there you have the Lord denouncing them for the greed and the theft and the sheer dishonesty and corruption of their hearts and obviously of their actions as well. And then the Lord moves on from verse 6 to 11, which again we'll, we'll read, to, to deal with the false prophets. And the problem with the false prophets is that the false prophets were trying to stop the true prophets from speaking. So let's, let's read here from, from verse 6. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should it be said, O house of Jacob, is the Spirit of the Lord angry? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to him whose ways are upright? Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up, go away, for this is not your resting place, because it is defiled, it is ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for this people. And of course what the Lord is saying here is that you've got the prophets who are kind of saying, everything's going to be fine. Don't, don't worry about anything. The Lord's going to bless us. Judgment isn't going to come. And that what they were doing is they were preventing the true prophets who were saying, look, if we don't repent, we're going to be judged. The false prophets were stopping the true ones from actually speaking out. And so therefore here, Micah kind of like, you know, sort of rails against these men. And what he was saying is, look, you know, sort of like if you lot were prophesying, there's going to be plenty of wine and beer and you just go and have a good old knees up and you all get roaring drunk. He says, that's what you're really like. That's the sort of prophets you are. You might as well be prophesying about going out for a good old booze up. That is what your prophecies are worse. Because they were false prophecies, merely the thoughts of men rather than God, excusing sin all the time, saying it doesn't matter how we live, it doesn't matter what we're like, God is going to bless us anyway, there won't be any judgment. And of course, this is why the false prophets are always peace, peace, when there is no peace. Because God's people, when they went against him, he came upon them in judgment. And if they'd have repented, that judgment could have been put off. And so the last thing they needed were false prophets saying, no, it's okay, everything's fine. And then in verse 12 and 13, the last two verses of chapter 2, again, we'll, we'll read them. And, and this is the promise of eventual restoration for Israel. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. 
the place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. The king will pass through them, the Lord at their head. And of course, what you've got there is the, the promise that although Israel and Judah were facing eventual captivity, facing judgment, facing destruction, that nevertheless, and we've seen this throughout all the prophets that we've looked at, all the time it's held in view that in a day yet to come, and of course we know it's the second coming, it's the establishing of the kingdom, the thousand year reign of Jesus on earth, when Israel is eventually top dog and all the nations flood in to, you know, to worship the Lord in the midst of Israel. And that all the time that restoration is held in view, that no matter how bleak it looks now, at this moment for God's people, the future is going to be absolutely as God has promised. And that, 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 that all the promises of them being in the land and safe and fully restored are all going to come true. So there you have it. Whenever you get this, uh, you know, the prophecies that judgment is coming upon Israel, always it's held before them. But eventually there's going to be restoration. As we move into <clears throat> chapter 3, we'll find ourselves coming back to the false prophets here. But uh, in, in general, it's rebuke for the leaders of God's people. And obviously, the leaders of God's people should have been caring for them, should have been enabling them to, to grow in the Lord, to get closer to him. But rather than that, the leaders were merely exploiting the people. They were self-serving. They were exploiting the position they were in in leadership and getting rich and, 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 and at the expense of those who they were leading. So they were leaders who were completely self-serving, far from the sacrificial leadership of being a servant. These were, were men who were leading for what they could get out of the people. Um, let's just read verses 1 to 3 and it'll give you, the, um, give you the idea of what God thought of them. Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. Should you not know justice, you who hate good and love evil? Saying, look, your leaders, you should understand justice. But instead of that, you hate good and you love evil. A complete reverse of what they should have been. And he goes on to say, Who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones. Who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces. Who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. And he's saying, that's what you're like, like cannibals. You just look on people and, oh, you know, I've, I'm hungry, I'll eat them and, and strip them bare of everything they've got. Kind of fleece them. And that's all they are. They're nothing, you know, sort of no more than lumps of meat to them. A uh, very graphic picture there of cannibalism. Not that cannibalism was actually happening, but Lord's saying that's what you like. You devour them. You're the leaders, but you're devouring the people. I mean, you know, you'd have the shirts off their back if you could. But here, why stop at the shirt? Have their back off as well. That's, that, that's what the Lord's saying here. And that's the picture of these utterly selfish and self-serving leaders that God's people have got round at this time. Going to verse, verse 5, and, and now we're, we're back, to the, um, back to the prophets. And you know, the false ones, that is. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, if one feeds them, they proclaim peace. If he does not, they prepare to wage war against him. So what he's saying now with these false prophets, grease their palms 
and they'll come up with lovely prophecies for you. Oh, everything's going to be wonderful, absolutely fantastic, and just pay them the money and out come the prophecies. But if you don't pay them the money, then far from prophesying peace, far from them prophesying that everything's going to go well with you, then they will wage war against you and they'll make sure that things go wrong for you. It's a kind of um, a spiritually prophetic protection racket going on here. Pay the prophets, they prophesy peace, they prophesy good things. Don't pay them and they will make sure that life is not good for you in any way at all. I mean, can you imagine this? You know, prophets for profit is literally what these people are. And the Lord goes on to say, therefore night will come over you without visions, darkness without divination, the sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. And at once they've been taken into captivity, what are their prophecies worth then? How can you make money going around saying peace, peace to people who've been dragged off as slaves? And that's the judgment coming on these prophets. And uh, then in chapter 3, he moves on and um, specifically predicts the eventual destruction of Jerusalem. Remember, all the time he's got these two things in view. There's the imminent destruction of the um, northern kingdom, the, the Assyrian captivity. And that when that happened, it would impinge on the gates of Jerusalem. But up to that point, Jerusalem would be spared. However, beyond that, a time is going to come when Jerusalem and Judah and the southern kingdom are going to fall as well. And of course, we know that that happened a hundred years after the Assyrian captivity when the Babylonians moved in and took the southern kingdom captive. So chapter 3 moves on and ends with the specific prediction of Jerusalem's eventual destruction. Right, now moving on to chapter 4. And we have here a lovely prophecy describing aspects of the eventual restored kingdom. And again, obviously, we know that this is going to be after the second coming and the thousand-year reign of Jesus. And it's worth reading just because it gives us a bit of an insight into the millennium. So this is chapter 4 and verse 1. In the last days, it's always the key, in the last days, all right. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. What's happening here? So this time when... Israel and Judah are facing the prospect of captivity at the Gentile nations and being oppressed by the Gentile um, peoples. Here, Micah looks ahead to a time when rather than oppressing Israel, all the Gentile nations will flood into Israel to honour her. You know, and that rather than being the underdog, that Israel will eventually be, you know, the big cheese, because Jesus will be ruling the earth from Jerusalem itself. And, and here's this picture of 
all the nations pouring into Israel in, way, you know, in order to bless her and in order to learn from the Lord in her midst. Then they, they go on. He will teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus will be living there. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. Jesus will be the ultimate diplomat and look what his diplomacy leads to. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Isn't that lovely? There's going to be peace that thousand years when Jesus reigns. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree. So there you have, each person will have their possessions, their private property, and they'll be safe. Won't be running the risk of, of some thug coming in and beating them up and taking away their possessions. There'll be safety, there'll be security, because ultimately the Lord himself, and of course we know that, that, that we as the then glorified saints will be helping him, that, that Jesus and we will actually be policing the world, and uh, it'll bring peace, it'll be great. And no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods. Now that's interesting, because there'll be religious freedom in the millennium. And the people don't have to believe in the Lord. I mean, they'll still be free to have other gods, as long as they, when they have to, to go to Jerusalem and worship the Lord. But nevertheless, they're free in their conscience to, to go after other gods as long as it's not leading them into, you know, sort of sinning against other people. And then he ends, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And so you've got that, that kind of lovely picture there of, of, of what the eventual restored kingdom is going to be like. That rather than Israel at this time facing captivity from the Gentiles, day is going to come when the Gentiles will flood into Israel in order to be blessed by the Lord in their midst. And then the prophecy goes on to very specifically um, show that the eventual captivity that will come on Judah was going to be at the hands of the Babylons. So you get a specific prophecy here now that eventually, remember, he's saying that the Assyrian captivity is going to happen to the north. Jerusalem's going to be spared that. But now he goes on to say, but eventually Jerusalem will be destroyed. And he now goes on to specify, and it's going to be at the hands of the Babylonians. Now this is remarkable because this is over a hundred years before the Babylonian Empire was even an empire. Just a pot little nation at this point. And a hundred years before the Babylonians even arose to be a world power, here Micah is prophesying that the Babylonians were going to be the means or the cause of the captivity for Judah. Right, now we move into chapter 5. Um, we'll start with uh, verses 2 to 5. You'll um, soon see why. But you... Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. 
Now, underline that, then we'll move on. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labour gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Now then, do you remember in the nativity story that, that shortly after Jesus was born, eventually the magi, the wise men, came from the east in order to worship him. And, uh, you know, they were kind of like, you know, they came um, to Jerusalem saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And Herod hears about it. And uh, he, he says to them, look, when you find him, come back and tell me so I can go and worship him. Though obviously Herod was wanting to kill him, not to worship him. And you remember eventually the Magi found him. Uh, but the Lord warns them once they've worshipped him, warns them not to go back to Herod. So they go back to their country a different route, and eventually Herod realises that they're not coming back. But he still wants to kill this child who's been born king of the Jews. And you remember that what he does is that he gets his like, you know, chief priests and his teachers around and stuff like that, and he says to them, where, where is Messiah to be born? And they quote these verses from Micah. Because here we have verses that tell us that Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, hundreds and hundreds of years before it happened. And of course, this, this is the thing about Jesus. I mean, it's just you know, one of the million things that, 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 that proves that he was exactly who he said he was. Because how do you arrange where you're born? And Jesus was, of course, the only person who has ever arranged in advance where he was going to be born. Because, of course, he existed in glory as God himself before he was born as a man. And so here in Micah, you have the verses that established where Messiah was going to be born. And, uh, you know, Matthew tells us that the nativity, um, you know, sort of like everything that happened there was fulfilling prophecies in the Old Testament. And this is the prophecy uh, that Jesus fulfilled by being born in Bethlehem. And then, of course, you get the verses about how he'll shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and, and he will be their peace. And, 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 and there you've got it, prophecy about the coming Messiah. And then it proceeds on um, to be coming back again to this theme that although Israel is facing oppression and ultimate captivity, nevertheless a remnant are still going to be saved, and that even in that captivity, a remnant will be spared and saved. And um, so Israel will continue. God's people will always continue. They'll always be the Jews. And that a remnant will be saved through that captivity. And that eventually, Israel would see victory over its oppressors when the time comes when it is restored to the Lord and the Lord herself is fighting for Israel again. So there you have it, future restoration. All the time, judgment is coming, but nevertheless, the end of the story is going to be restoration in the Lord. Judgment is coming, but restoration is going to be the final chapter of the book. So all the time with Israel, it's hope for the future, hope for the future. And in chapter 6, the Lord challenges the people further in regards to 
the sin for which he's judging them. And basically the Lord lists um, various things. <coughs> he mentions their ingratitude. That in, in the light of their history, everything the Lord had done for them, they were so ungrateful. There was no thanksgiving in their hearts at all. And it's interesting, to stop being thankful to God is one of the first signs of rebellion. In Romans, Paul, when dealing with the effects of sin on mankind, he says, and they ceased to give thanks to God. And it's always that, you know, we need to watch this, you know, we must make sure we're thankful. Ingratitude is, is, is the beginning of a very, very slippery slope. And, and the Lord is saying this to his people here, that, that they've such ingratitude in regards to all the mercies and blessings that he bestowed on them in the past. And then he lists further their dishonesty. We've already seen this. The, you know, I mean, they, they'd steal their neighbours' houses. I mean, you know, it was literally, if it weren't nailed down, it was gone in the morning. I mean, this was the dishonesty of their hearts. Their false religion and idolatry. Remember all the terrible things. He, he, even to the point of child sacrifice to Molech. The, 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 the dreadful occultic and pseudo-religious practices. And the Lord lists it. And he goes on their violence. There was violence in the people and corruption as well. And that's kind of like a list of the kind of things, the reason that judgment was coming upon them. Because the Lord just couldn't tolerate these things any further. Then chapter 7 <clears throat> begins with verses which record a lament that, that Micah gives for the people. It, it's sort of like you remember we saw in Jeremiah, albeit he was uh, you know over a hundred years after Micah, but when we were doing his book um, we saw that uh, you know that eventually he saw Jerusalem destroyed and fall to the um, Babylonians and then he wrote Lamentations and he lamented over Jerusalem because it was all so avoidable and yet the people wouldn't avoid it because they wouldn't repent and here Micah he pours out a lamentation for the situation that he sees God's people in let's just read um, a couple of verses he says what misery is mine I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There's no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The godly have been swept from the land, not one upright man remains. All men lie in wait to shed blood, each hunts his brother with a net. And he, he, he just goes on and just laments at the dreadful situation the people um, are in. But then it, it, it moves on. And he uses the literary device here of like the actual, the land itself, the earth, the actual geographical land speaking. And, um, and, and the land proclaims that it will rise again, that, that it has a future. Judgment is coming, but it has a future. And then the Lord speaks back to the land and, and confirms and, and says, yes, that, that is ap absolutely true. You know, sort of like you will be established again. And, um, and the book ends with, with a prayer that Micah prays. He, he praises God for his mercy and his compassion. And he, he looks forward to 
the nation's eventual restoration as the Lord had promised. And uh, there's, there's, we'll just end Micah by, by, by reading those, those verses. Chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. And when the Lord does that, you confess sin, it goes into the depths of the sea and there's a sign over it, no fishing. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. So there you have it, ends on hope, eventual restoration. Right, okay, there endeth Micah. Boom, boom. Right, now then, Nahum. Who was Nahum sent to? Who did he preach to? Well, let's give you the background here. Nahum comes on the scene 150 years after Jonah went to Nineveh. All right? Remember, we did that last time. Jonah, off to Nineveh. And Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, converted, you know, repented, and they became believers. So 150 years has passed, Nahum comes on the scene. Um, but 60 years prior to that, the northern kingdom has gone into captivity at the hands of the Assyrians. So what you've got, you have Jonah, he goes to the Ninevites, and he knows that the Assyrians are going to, you know, sort of take his land into captivity because he knew that from the prophets. But knowing that, God sends Jonah to Assyria, go and preach to them, and he does so reluctantly because he's afraid that they're going to believe and be spared. And they do believe and they are spared. And he was very miffed about it. So Jonah goes to Nineveh. Now then, 90 years later, the Assyrians take the northern kingdom into captivity. All right? And then, 60 years after that, Nahum comes on the scene. So this is 60 years after the northern kingdom has been taken into captivity and it's 40 years before the southern kingdom is taken into Babylonian captivity. All right? Now, Nahum is a prophet of Judah, obviously, because the north is gone, only Judah is left. All right? And he receives prophecy to deliver to the Assyrians. All right? So the Assyrian nation who has taken the north into captivity, all right, Nahum now gets a prophecy about them. Now then, this is the message that Jonah would have wanted to take, <laughs> but didn't. Jonah would have been very pleased to have delivered this message. If Jonah had been Nahum, he would have been delighted. Because whereas Jonah took the message of mercy and they repented and were saved, Nahum now takes to them the message of judgment because of what they've done to God's people. All right. So the point is now, Nahum has a prophetic message to Assyria 60 years after Assyria has destroyed the northern kingdom. So, date 630 BC, during the reign of King Josiah. So, therefore, Nahum comes on the scene then, Jeremiah's just a lad, all right? And Nahum comes on the scene. And he thunders this prophecy of judgment against the Assyrians. Right, so then, chapter 1, let's, let's see how it pans out. 
And uh, it starts off with him proclaiming God's goodness and patience. That that is the nature of God. You know, always slow, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But nevertheless, he is a God who judges those nations who are against him and which are against his people. Now you remember God's covenant with Abraham was that if anyone blesses Abraham, they'll be blessed. But if anyone curses Abraham, they'll be cursed. And Assyria has been the means of destroying the northern kingdom. Therefore, Assyria, although it was the means of God's judgment against Israel, now Assyria is going to be judged by God for the evil they have done against Israel. And, um, and the prophecy goes on to say that not only is Assyria going to be judged because it's been against Israel and destroyed it, but that eventually the people of God, i.e. Israel and Judah, the, 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 you know, but the people of God will eventually come to a point where they've got permanent protection against invasion. So Israel is going to come to a point where they'll be safe in the land, where no one can ever invade them again. And of course that's looking forward to the second coming and to the thousand year reign of Jesus. And um, in chapters 2 and 3, this is ever so quick because there are only three chapters. Chapters 2 and 3, he gives a detailed prophecy of how Nineveh was going to fall. Nineveh being the capital city um, of Assyria. And then contrast, I'm not going to go into the details, you can read it, but, but, but a real detailed account of what's going to happen when Nineveh falls. And then... In contrast, the prophecy that Israel has got an absolutely wonderful future. Um, just, just read um, chapter 2 and verse 2. He says, the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob. They destroyed it. But Nahum is saying to them, the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. Though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. And then verse 8 to 10. He says, Nineveh is like a pool and its water is draining away, i.e. time is running out. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless, the wealth from all its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped. Hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. Now that was the judgment that eventually came on Nineveh. And it was fulfilled in the following way. Because about 20 years later, all right, and this, this was, as the Babylonians became more and more powerful, all right, what they started to do, they took over the then known world. You do it a nation at a time. Well, you notice when you play Risk, don't you? You don't do it one nation at a time. And that's what the Babylonians did. And about 20 years after the time of Nahum, after Nahum thundered this out to the Assyrians. About 20 years later, and about 20 years before the Babylonians eventually got to Judah um, and took the uh, the Israelites captive, um, they they got into um, an alliance with the Medeans and uh, they attacked Assyria. And what they did is that they, they so destroyed it, this, this attack of the Babylonians, along with the Medes, against um, 
Nineveh was was so effective that even Nineveh's geographical location was lost to history. So this destruction of Nineveh was so thorough that for thousands of years no one even knew where it was. The name was remembered to history. I mean, the name was in the Bible for a start. But it was only in recent years that archaeological um, digs have discovered where Nineveh actually was. So that was how well it was destroyed. It was obliterated from the face of the earth and it has taken modern excavations to actually discover where it is. So that, that, that was Nahum, all right? You know, sort of basically pronouncing God's judgment against the Assyrians because of what they did to Israel. Okay, well now we move on to um, Habakkuk. Quite interesting one, Habakkuk. This is a bit bit fascinating this is um, he, he lived down in Judah um, in the years leading up to the Babylonian captivity um, probably lived to see it happen alright so the north has gone the Assyrians have taken the north into captivity a hundred years later the Babylonians plundered the south now this is in the years leading up to that Babylonian captivity of the south so um, Habakkuk is a prophet down in Judah during that time. Now, his prophecy doesn't take the form of a message to Judah. This isn't like messages that he received from God and then went out and preached to the people. The form this book takes is a question and answer dialogue between Habakkuk and the Lord. So that what you've got is Habakkuk asks the Lord certain questions and then, uh, and sometimes much to Habakkuk's dismay, the Lord answers him, all right? Not necessarily with the answers he wanted. And so that's what you've got here. You've got a dialogue between Habakkuk and the Lord. Habakkuk is raising certain questions. What about this Lord? And the Lord is showing him the answers. Or showing him, in some instances, as you'll see, why he can't know the answers. And sometimes you say, Lord, what's the answer? And the answer is, you can't know. That is the answer sometimes. So let, let, let's see how this, this pans out. Let's, let's go into chapter one. And, um, <clears throat> and question number one, and it's in verses two to four. And the question is this. Habakkuk is saying to the Lord, Lord, why aren't you judging Judah for her sins? So he's looking around he's seeing the utter depravity of the nation. The, the total remembering that they went through child sacrifice. We've seen this in past talks. The utter depravity of the South in the years leading up to the captivity. I mean, that they were sacrificing their own children, child sacrifice to Molech. Unbelievable, their idolatry, the wickedness, the, you know, it, it was awful. Habakkuk, a prophet, a faithful you know, believer, He's looking around and he's seeing everyone prospering in their sins. It's all going on unchecked. And he's basically saying, Lord, why aren't you judging Judah for her sins? That's his question. Why aren't you doing it, Lord? And in verses 5 to 11, the Lord answers him. And what the Lord says, I'm going to judge Judah with a Babylonian captivity. That's the Lord's answer. He says, the Babylonians are going to march in and they're going to take you all into captivity. That's what I'm going to do about your sins. And then that immediately leads on to Habakkuk's second question. 
verses 12 to 17. And this is it. His second question is this. How can it be right for the Lord to use the Babylonians as judgment against Judah for her sins, when the Babylonians are much more evil than we are anyway? That's his second question. So his first question is, Lord, why aren't you judging us for our sins? And the Lord says, I'm going to, there's going to be a Babylonian captivity. But Lord, how can you do that? The Babylonians are more evil than we are. Where is the justice in sending a nation to judge us if that nation are even more evil than we are? And uh, that's, that's, that's his second question. If you look in verse 12, all right, um, let's see, he says, um, uh, oh, hang on, it's still open, Nahum there, excuse me, have a cut, right, look at verse 12, and he says, O Lord, are you not from everlasting, my God, my Holy One, we will not die. So the Lord has said, I'm going to send the Babylonians, all right? And immediately, Habakkuk, he just can't believe it. He says, oh Lord, no, we won't die. His knee-jerk reaction is, not, not in a million years. No, that cannot be, all right? But then, if we go on in verse 12, he says, oh Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. Oh rock, you have ordained them to punish. So then he gathers himself and he says, well, okay, Lord, if you say it, it's going to happen. So he said, you know, Lord, why aren't you judging us for our sins? The Lord says, I'm going to through the Babylonians. Knee-jerk reaction, Lord, I don't believe it. You can't do that. They're more evil than we are. Oh, yeah, okay, Lord, I do accept it. You are going to do it, all right. But then look in verse 13. He says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. And then Habakkuk decides, no, Lord, you're too holy to do this. You couldn't possibly do this. You're far too holy. And, and, and so can you see Habakkuk, he's, he's going into these mental gymnastics now, he's confused. He's kind of, well if the Lord says it, I believe it, but how can I possibly accept that? And you see, he's doing these somersaults, he's trying to get his mind round the answer he's had to his question, Lord, why aren't you judging us? And then the Lord says, I am going to judge you through the Babylonians. And it blows Habakkuk's mind, and he gets all confused in quite a major way. Right, verse, uh, chapter 2, and you'll see how this, um, this develops. Now look at this, he says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. So, what he's saying, right, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait for God to answer me. So, again, he, he said to the Lord, Lord, why aren't you judging us? And the Lord has said, I'm going to judge you through the Babylonians. Habakkuk has responded, no, Lord, you can't do that. I believe you're going to, but you can't do and all these jits. So, Lord, what on earth is, how can you judge us through the Babylonians when they're more evil than we are? And now Habakkuk is saying, right, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait until God has answered my question. And the rest of chapter 2 is the Lord answering his question. Remember, the question he's waiting for the answer for is, Lord, how can you judge us through the Babylonians when the Babylonians are even more evil than we are? That does not make sense to me. He's saying, Lord, that doesn't compute. 
says, Lord, that doesn't seem to me to be a very just thing to do. And he's sitting there waiting for the answer. And then in verse 2 and 3, the Lord says, write this down. <laughs> he says, write this down, Habakkuk. Because I'm going to give you the answer now, but I want you to write it down because others need to know the answer. So I mean, then the Lord replied, write down the revelation. Make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. I oh, make sure everyone knows it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. I.e. what God has said about this is going to happen. All right. But write down this answer. Now then, the answer that the Lord gives him has three aspects to it. All right. Now, this is the Lord's answer. Okay. Aspect number one, or, or first part of the answer. Babylon will eventually be destroyed as well. And uh, most of this chapter depicts this. And it, it paints a graphic picture that the Babylonians are going to be destroyed. And of course that eventually happened 70 years after the Babylonians took Judah into captivity. 70 years later, Babylon fell to the Medo-Persian Empire. So that prophecy was fulfilled. So the Lord's first part of his answer is, Habakkuk, Babylon is going to be destroyed as well. And uh, just look at verse 4 here, because this is um, an important verse, because uh, virtually the whole of the New Testament is based on it. Look at this. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Now, the key thing there is that thing the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, the he, he is puffed up, his desires are not upright. That's the corporate he of the Babylonians. Remember, the Lord is going on to say, I'm going to destroy the Babylonians. But the righteous shall live by his faith. So what the Lord is saying is that anyone who is righteous through faith, anyone who is right with me, anyone who has put their trust in me, Obviously, judgment is not going to come on them. With death all around, the righteous are going to live. All right? So the righteous don't get caught up in the judgment of the guilty. Now, of course, the point is that, 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 that this in the New Testament becomes one of the major verses that both Paul and the writer to the Hebrews base their letters on. I mean, for Paul, um, the, 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 the whole of the book of Romans... And the whole of the book of Galatians are based on explaining what this verse means. The just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. I we're saved, <coughs> not by works, not because we're good, not because we earn it, not because we deserve it. We're saved merely because we've got faith. All right. And the writer to the Hebrews employs the verse in exactly the same way. So here, <coughs> you've got simply... The Lord's saying <coughs> the Babylonians are going to be destroyed as well. And it's almost an aside. But of course the righteous shall live by his faith. I, you know, no one who trusts me will get caught up in this judgment. And then this verse here, that in its context is really almost a throwaway line, a little aside, becomes virtually the verse that the New Testament is based on. A throwaway line. Because of course... If you have faith in Jesus, if you put your trust in Jesus, <coughs> you won't end up in the judgment on sin because you've passed from judgment to life if you're a believer. And so you get that, that, that verse there. 
So, the first part of God's answer is, well, Habakkuk, don't worry, because the Babylonians are going to be destroyed as well. That's the first part of the answer. The second aspect of the answer is verse 14. I'll read this. <coughs> and the Lord says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, obviously, that is going to be fulfilled in the millennium, in the thousand-year reign of Christ, and uh, a time when the whole world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. All right? Well, that's helpful, isn't it, to the you know, answering the question? The third part of the answer is verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple... Let all the earth be silent before him. And the third part of God's answer is Habakkuk, don't even try to understand the answer to your question. It's beyond you. You cannot know the answer to this question. Let's revise very quickly. Habakkuk has said, Lord, why aren't you judging us as a nation for our sins? And the Lord says, I'm going to through the Babylonians. Lord, how can you justify judging us through the Babylonians when they're more evil than we are? And the Lord answers, number one, I will judge the Babylonians as well. Number two, a time is coming when the whole world will understand. Number three, don't try and understand now. See? The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. See here, God is saying to Habakkuk, you must simply bow before my sovereignty here. I know the answer to the question, you don't. And if we've got questions that we could know the answer to, the Lord will tell us. Do you remember Jesus said, you know, I, I, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Because a master, you know, doesn't tell his servants what he's doing. But I'm telling you what I'm doing. Whatever we can understand, the Lord will tell us. But there are things that we can't understand. So the Bible says, who? Who can know the will of the Lord? I mean, it's, it's, it's just too deep for us. <coughs> and in Romans 9, verse 20, uh, you remember that there, Paul is dealing with the issue of predestination and free will. And what he does is that he, he kind of... He, he raises or he uses a hypothetical person who's arguing with him, all right, as it were, who, 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 who is basically raising the point, hey, this isn't fair, this predestination bit, it's not fair. And Paul then says, who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Which is Paul's version of this, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him. Because here's someone, as it were, saying, well, look, if the Lord is sovereign, uh, if we're predestined, we haven't got any free will. And Paul says, well, look, if you haven't got any free will, how come you can question the Lord then? But he's basically saying, this is beyond you. And he says, who is the clay to talk back to the potter? Because at the end of the day, these are questions, like Habakkuk's here, that we can't understand the answer to. Not because God doesn't want us to understand the answer, not because he's not willing to give us the answer, but because even if he did, we wouldn't recognise it. It is simply beyond our understanding. And so, therefore, you've simply got that the Lord is saying to Habakkuk, well, 
here's the answer to your question. There isn't an answer you could possibly understand. And that is often the position that we're in, isn't it? We feel we want to understand more of what God's doing, but we reach a limit when it's beyond us. You know, like King David, that's one of my favourite, you know, Psalms, when David says, I, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvellous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a child at its mother's breast. I have calmed and quieted my soul. And King David there saying, look, there are issues which are just beyond me. All I can do is curl up on God's lap and let him cuddle me. Because I don't know the answers to the questions, but I trust the Lord. And that's the point. It doesn't matter if we don't know what God's doing. God knows what he's doing. And that's all that matters. And what's interesting now is in chapter 3, <coughs> we get Habakkuk's response to all this. So Habakkuk, he's raised the question, Lord, why aren't you judging us? The Lord says, I'm going to, through Babylon. Oh, Lord, how can that possibly be just? The Lord's answer, you couldn't understand even if I tried to tell you, basically. And then in chapter 3, we have Habakkuk's response to it scratching his head, probably a bit frustrated. And in, um, in verse 1 to 15, you have Habakkuk quite deliberately praying a prayer of complete submission to God's sovereign will. Let's, let's read it. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. Now that's, that's the Lord's power. The picture there is the Lord stands up. As he stands up, there's an earthquake on the earth because he's so big and heavy. You see, see the picture here? This is just the bigness of God. He looked and made the nations tremble. That's all it takes, a look and the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled. The age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress the dwellings of Midian in anguish. And then go down to verse 11. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. That's the threshing sledge, separating the wheat from the chaff. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness, you stripped him from head to foot. And so it goes on, and you get this, this prayer where Habakkuk is simply acknowledging the utter greatness of God. So the, what we see here is that Habakkuk is just consciously surrendering to God's sovereignty. He's accepting what God has said to him. Basically, you can't understand. And although Habakkuk wants to understand, and although there are aspects, the thought of the Babylonians judging Judah probably made him want to spit. That probably went against every religious cell in his body. But nevertheless, he had to simply submit to what God was doing. 
he was confronted with the idea of God doing something that in his opinion was unholy. He thought God was wrong to do it. But here he is submitting to God. He can't, he can't help his response that, oh God, you can't do this. This isn't right. He can't help his initial response. But what he's doing now, he's surrendering the way he feels about it to the Lord. He's giving it to the Lord. And basically he's acknowledging, yes, Lord, you are in your temple and you do whatever you want. You know, shall not the judge of all the earth do right, as it were. And then look at verse 16 now. He's finished this prayer. That ended in verse 15. And now in, in verse 16, listen to what he says here. This is fascinating. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. This is the answer he's received from the Lord. He's heard it and he's quivering at the sound of the answer. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Now, that, I put it to you, describes quite accurately what some people experience when they're filled with the Holy Spirit. He couldn't stand up anymore. His legs trembled, his bones quivered. You see, decay crept into my bones. I, my bones wouldn't hold me up anymore. And I think that what's happening here, he's been filled with the Spirit. You know, and he's, he's trembling and he's, he, he can't stand up anymore. You know, maybe he actually falls over. And he's, he's being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he says, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. And all he can do is hang on to the one bit he can understand. And it was the first part of God's answer to him, that God was going to judge the Babylonians. And that was the only bit that Habakkuk could possibly get his mind round. And so what he's done, he's surrendered to the Lord on this issue. He's been filled with the Spirit and he says, right, there's one bit I can understand, so I'm just going to hang on to that. The rest, as it were, I'm leaving um, to your hands. And then listen to verse 17 and 19. And if ever you see the fruit of being filled with the Spirit, it's in these verses. And when you take these verses in the context of Habakkuk, then when we sing these verses, the next time we sing that Don Francisco chorus, though the fig tree does not blossom and there be no grapes upon the vine, though the olives fail and the field produces no fruit, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He's had a revelation of the sovereignty of God, hasn't he? The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. Well, two minutes earlier he couldn't stand up hardly, his legs were trembling. Now his legs are like the feet of a deer. He's strong. He's seen it where he is weak then he's strong. He enables me to go on the heights. And so Habakkuk comes to the place where he's simply saying, God, you be God, and I praise you. And even though I can't see anything of what you're doing, even though I can't see anything that seems to me to be positive, even though I can't see any grapes on the vine, I can't see any cattle in the stall, I can't see anything good. It looks like you have totally deserted us. It looks like you're hardly a God worth having from what's going on. 
But nevertheless, I praise you because you are sovereign and you're doing your will and you know exactly what you are doing. And this revelation of Habakkuk is one of the most important revelations that any believer can have. It's the revelation that brings you from the transition of basically feeling that by understanding everything God's doing that somehow you're controlling him, this sense of control, to coming to a place where everything is relinquished to the Lord, where the Lord is in control. And where, okay, you might not understand what's going on, but it doesn't matter anymore because the Lord understands what's going on. And this is where Habakkuk received the peace <coughs> that passes all understanding, as Paul called it. And so when you see this context, I mean, often when we don't understand what's happening, well, why should we for one moment have ever believed that we were going to understand everything that God was doing? It's a ridiculous thought. When you think of it, you relied on understanding what God was doing. How ridiculous. Why should we understand everything? The idea is ridiculous that the clay should understand everything that Potter's doing with it. But because God is good and because God is sovereign and because God is holy, he knows what he's doing. Therefore, we rest in that and we praise him precisely because he is sovereign and he is completely in control. Right, okay, that's Habakkuk. Zephaniah, we've just got time to do him. Not a heavy one, all right? Relatively light and airy is old Zeph. Um, right, Zephaniah, around the same time as a Jeremiah and Nahum in the reign of Josiah, and uh, just, just missed Habakkuk, probably a few years after Habakkuk went off the scene. Uh, so again, the lead up to the Babylonian captivity of Judah. Um, Zephaniah was the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. So he was a bit of a bod. Um, you know, he, he, he was family to the, the current king, Josiah. He was a relative. Um, and Zephaniah, he, he was during the reign of Josiah. Josiah was the best king that Judah had had since David. So, so Josiah was an excellent king. He was one of the reasons why the captivity was held off as long as it was, because Josiah really kind of led a, a revival. And he was the one, he rebuilt the temple and restored it to its former glory. And, uh, and while he was doing that, you remember, because we, you know, we've seen this when we're doing the history of Israel in, in, in past talks, he was the one that while they were rebuilding the temple, they found the book of the law. As soon as it was gone, they'd lost the book of the law. I mean, no one was reading the Bible. They didn't have it anymore. They'd lost it. And during Josiah's reign, they found a copy in the temple. And, uh, and so Josiah had them teach it to everyone. Uh, so there was a real revival of Bible teaching in the land. And uh, Josiah removed idolatry and occultism completely. He drove out all the occultists. And... Um, and Zephaniah, whose prophecy we're going to read here, was doubtless instrumental in that. It was, you know, partly the ministry that he was involved in that brought Josiah and the land to that place where there was a real, it didn't last long, but there was a real revival and a real kind of, you know, sort of like turning, you know, sort of turning back to God. Although Zephaniah does prophesy that eventually the Babylonian captivity will come. His ministry put it off for a while because the people responded and there was a revival, but he did nevertheless prophesy that eventually the captivity would come. So let's, let's go into um, chapter 1, and um, verses 
2 and 3, he, he states the general principle that judgment will come upon the whole earth. And uh, he uses the language, if you read through it, I think you'll, you'll see quite clearly, it's the language of, of Noah's flood. So he's kind of, you know, the sort of like, um, you know, the language refers to the coming judgment that there's going to be, as if it's a flood that's going to sweep everything away. And of course, when the Babylonians came, that is exactly what they were like. I mean, they just flooded in and they swept everything away with them. And, and, and all the, 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 the Jews in Judah were taken off into captivity. And in verses 4 to, to, to 13, <coughs> Judah and Jerusalem, Jerusalem obviously being the capital of Judah, condemned for occultism, and particularly astrology, uh, which, which obviously absolutely forbidden under the law, and also for their idolatry. And uh, remember that this is in, in, in the years when child sacrifice had been going on to the, the god Molech. And uh, it, it was dreadful, there was this big statue this god Molak, it was metal, and uh, there was a big bowl in, in, in the statue's hand, and that bowl was, was kept absolutely red hot with coals, and they threw their babies into the, the bowl. And Israel was doing this. Absolutely unbelievable. And also, they're condemned for violence and deceit, and for a, a complacent attitude. They're, their attitude was that God wasn't going to do anything about it. Remember the false prophets? No, God's going to bless you. Doesn't, don't change. No, everything's fine just the way it is. And, you know, through Zephaniah, <coughs> these sins are convicted and, and he thunders out against them. And then in verse 14 to 18, the, the coming Babylonian captivity is used to prefigure an eventual day of the Lord when judgment will come on the whole earth. So he's saying a judgment is going to come on Judah. The Babylonians are going to judge Judah. But then he uses that to prefigure another day in the future when the whole earth is going to be judged by God. And of course then you're harking back, for instance, to the prophecies of Joel with like, remember his locust invasion and the, the valley of decision and, and harking back to that theme in the prophets as well, when they look ahead to a day that's coming when all the world is going to be judged, not just Judah, not just Israel, or indeed not just the immediate nations that affected them there and then, but the day is going to come when the whole world, all the nations of the world, are going to be judged. Then in chapter 2, in uh, the first three verses, he <coughs> calls to the nation to repent and tells them if they seek humility, actually seek it, that the Lord might yet spare them. So he's saying if you humble yourselves, if you even yet, we've gone so far, but if we humble ourselves, the Lord might yet spare us. And then the rest of chapter four, uh, chapter two, sorry, is taken up with judgment being pronounced against the Gentile nations around at the time. Um, the Philistines and their cities, he speaks words of judgment against them, that they're going to fall, be judged. Then Moab and Ammon. Then Cush, which was Ethiopia, that's, that's what it was called in those days. And then Assyria, and you remember Nahum prophesied against them as well. And of course, all those nations fell to the Babylonians, so it was very much a clean sweep. The Babylonians were used, not just to judge the Jews, 
but also to judge the other surrounding Gentile nations as well. And of course, eventually, the Babylonians themselves were destroyed and taken over by the Medo-Persians. So they're a general a call to the Jews that if they repent, they can be spared, but then pronouncement of judgment against the Gentile nations. And then in chapter 3, <coughs> he charges Jerusalem with being oppressive towards people, so like unfair and oppressing the poor. Um, he tells them that they're defiled, that they're disobedient, that they're uncorrectable, that they're untrusting in the Lord, and that her leaders and priests are arrogant and treacherous, which they were. And goes on to, to say, so look, can't you see that if this isn't put right, obviously judgment is going to come. And then from verse 9 to 17, he details the eventual restoration of time when Israel was going to be restored to the land and that her king, the Lord her king, would actually rule amongst them. Just read verse 15. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the king of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. So obviously that describing the millennium, the eventual complete restoration of Israel to the land at the second coming during the thousand-year reign of Christ. And then verse 18 to 20, he ends up saying that um, eventually Jerusalem will become a place worthy of praise, uh, become a place that people think Jerusalem, that's fantastic rather than Jerusalem at this point having become a byword. So Jerusalem at this time was synonymous with shame and sin and disgrace. But he's saying but the time is going to come when Jerusalem is going to be a place worthy of praise. And, um, and then just read verse 19, At that time I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered. I will give them praise and honour in every land where they were put to shame. At that time I'll gather you, at that time I will bring you home. I will give you honour and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. And again, that same theme, that although facing judgment that was going to come eventually, the Babylonian captivity, nevertheless the long-term future of Israel and Judah, of God's people, was that they'll be restored in the land and that the Gentile nations that now oppress her and are the means of God judging her are themselves going to be judge, judged. And one day those Gentile nations are going to give honour to Israel because, of course, the Lord, their king, is in the midst of them. So although judgment is coming in the short term, again, this theme all the way through the prophets looking forward to that day yet in the future when Israel is going to be fully restored, fully faithful to the Lord, and all the nations of the earth, rather than oppressing Israel, are going to be coming in to give her praise and honour and glory and, and you know, stuff like that. So a complete reversal. Israel are out of, the, out of fellowship with God and downtrodden, but their eventual future is to be eternally in fellowship with God, and therefore, rather than being downtrodden, to be exalted with all the nations of the earth giving honour to them. Right, well, there you are, real value for money for, for, for profits there in one talk.